We extend Christian greetings to each of you tonight. It's a joy to be here. I had the privilege of being with Brother Harold and Sister Ruth in their home and had sweet fellowship there. Thank you for that, that joyful time, the good meal. And I feel like my heart's been fed here this evening already by the brothers that were sharing. Thank you for stirring my heart. And we need our hearts stirred, do we not? Do you need your heart stirred? You find it just like sort of goes to sleep. Gets lazy, doesn't it? And we need our hearts stirred by God's word. And God's word stirs our hearts when we allow it to. This evening for a springboard to our thoughts, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16. For a few verses, Matthew chapter 16, we'll begin reading in verse 13, Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven, and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I hope these words stir your heart tonight. The burning question that Jesus asked then and he asked to everyone now is who do you say that I am? And as we analyze our hearts, who do you say that he is? And do you believe that he is who he said he is and who Simon Peter confessed very clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ was? I find as we have the privilege and the opportunity to travel and share in various congregations and various denominations, that there is this tendency, particularly among the brethren, the older brethren, who, whose hearts ought to be full of zeal and passion for the kingdom of God, to sort of sit there with a furrowed brow and a downcast look and a discouraged heart. And they're wondering what in the world is happening in the church of Jesus Christ. It's sort of like we're pinned up against the wall just hoping to survive this whole ordeal. If we can just hang on and keep the church from drifting much further in our generation that in some way that we have been successful. And that is like the best that we can hope for. Do you ever get that sense? that things are really getting tough in the church of Jesus Christ. And then on the other side, we have young people who are satisfied with a theology of salvation. And they have reduced the knowing Jesus 
as a very present help down to an event in their lives when they said the sinner's prayer and they took the Romans road. And now because of that event that they those steps that they took 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they are Christians. And they have the theology down pat. But they don't have a walk with the Lord Jesus that separates them and their desires and their passions. It doesn't give them a biblical worldview. And so my heart is stirred as I, as I see the condition of many of our denominations. My heart is stirred to come back and to allow the Lord Jesus to speak to my heart. Because the reason that in many situations, the reason that we're not seeing revival in our churches, true revival that brings us to a brokenness before the Lord Jesus Christ, is because that we have reduced Christianity to a theology. We have reduced it perhaps to a way of life. Instead of understanding it, as Jesus teaches it here, that it is a relationship. It's about knowing him as that very present help. About knowing him in a very intimate, personal way. And we know this theology. We talk it this way. But the question that comes to every one of us is, do we live it? Do we live in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that impacts our very spirit and cleanses us from all filthiness, not only of the flesh, but of the spirit as well? The grace of God that comes to mankind and that calls us to salvation, not only calls us to salvation, but it teaches us how to live. How to live with a pure spirit as we mingle among each other, as we live out our daily lives, as we as we minister to one another in our homes, in our families, in our brotherhoods, where we experience a revival of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts through a relationship with Him in an ongoing personal way, in a day-to-day way. And so the question that we want to ask ourselves is, can we allow the Word of God to stir our hearts to where we get a fresh vision of Jesus Christ and we see the glory of His church in a new way? We desperately need to see the glory of the Bride of Christ in a new way in our day. God wants us to rejoice with His Son at what He is doing, what He will do, what He has promised that He will do. He says here, He says, Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? One of the first things that Peter says, Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we see two things there that Peter is confessing, and it's important that we confess the same. One is the deity of Christ. He says, Thou art the Son of the living God. And we see that as consistent through all the teachings of the apostles, and it's important for us to wrap our minds clearly around this truth, that it is the Word become flesh, that the Word Jesus Christ, God, became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Jesus came to earth because God so loved us, that he wanted us to know his heart. And Jesus came to reveal his Father to us and to teach us what his Father was like, to teach us the great love that his Father had for us. And so it's important for us to to recognize that and to be amazed at that. There is far too little amazement in the church of Jesus Christ. We have ceased to wonder. How long has it been since you have stopped and marveled 
that God loved the world so much. We say those verses, we, we quote those scriptures, and we quote those scriptures until they no longer make us stop and worship. And we need, to, we need to, again, in a new way, allow the word of God to stir our hearts to worship and to stand in awe at the reality that God so loved the world that the word Jesus became flesh. He who created us became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And we can today, in 2013, we can behold his glory. It's full of grace and it's full of truth. And it teaches us how to live in all godliness, in all purity. Secondly, he says that thou art the Christ. And from a Jewish perspective, he's saying you are the Messiah, the long-expected one. And who was the Messiah? It was understood by the Jews, and it's understood by true Christians today, that the Messiah is the one who fulfills the prophecies of a prophet that would come. And a prophet is one who heralds the good news. He teaches us. He proclaims the good news of the gospel. Have you heard the good news of the gospel? And is it making a difference in your life? Secondly, he is the priest. He is the one who comes to bring us reconciliation. He's the one who comes and who stands in the gap between us and God. He leads us to the Father. And he is the one who lays down his life so that we can have a restored relationship with the Father. These are deep truths. Deep truths that so many times we forget. Thirdly, the Messiah is the king. He is the king, and as the king, he does what? The king wins our loyalty. He wins our hearts to himself. Our king. Who do you say that he is? Is he the Christ? Is he your Christ? Is he your king? Has he won your heart? Has he won all of your affections? One of the things that Jesus taught, and he taught very clearly... Several times we read this in the Gospels. He says that the most important thing. Now when Jesus says that something is really, really important. You need to understand that it is just a little bit important. Or really, really important. I mean like really, really, really important. He says everything else about Christianity hangs on this truth. That the most important thing is that you love the Lord your God with at least 90% of your passion. Is that right? Then why do we live that way? Have you thought about that? I think about that. And it bothers me. And I hope it bothers you. We want to be growing. The brother shared about our growing in the Christian life. And we grow in obedience. And that's a beautiful concept. We want to be growing in love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And make sure that our passion is 100% for the Lord. And he says that the way that you can know that your passion, your love is 100% for the Lord is in the way that we do our horizontal relationships one with another. And if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, there is no question but that you are going to love one another with a pure heart and it's going to be with a fervent spirit. There's going to be a fervency about it. An intentionalness about the way that we love each other. We're going to be exhorting one another. 
We're going to be provoking one another to love and to good works and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so we're not going to be those who are cowered back against the wall just hoping to survive this whole ordeal. But we're going to be actively doing what the Lord Jesus has called us to do. And that is to be experiencing His love, returning His love. And in all the joy of knowing Him, we're going to be loving one another. And urging one another to a greater love. And so much the more as we see the day approaching, we need to be urging our hearts to a pure love towards God and a pure love towards one another. So He is our He is our prophet. He is our priest, our mediator, the only mediator, the only name under heaven whereby men and women can be saved. And he is our king, and he wants your heart. His desire is that you might answer with Peter with all conviction and passion. Thou art the king, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter gives acknowledgement to that Christ has a work that he is going to do and that he is going to do that work. And not only here, but if you turn with me briefly back to 1 Peter chapter 1, we see that Peter later in his life and later in his ministry, he says the same thing about the Lord Jesus. He, he, he confesses the Lord Jesus as the rock, that rock upon which the church must be built. And we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, actually. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I think I'll start reading at verse 6. Peter says, Wherefore also is contained in the Scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be. You're not going to be confounded. You're not going to find yourself pinned up against the wall, so to speak, with no place to turn. But you will find your heart filled with courage. Why? Unto you, therefore, he says in verse 7, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the same which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, look, you're not saved. You're not saved to be confounded. You're not saved to be cowering in a corner somewhere. You've been saved to show forth the praises of him who has snatched you out of darkness And has transplanted you into the glorious kingdom of light. So let's live that way. David says that his praise is going to be continually in my mouth. I will be continually praising him. And you will too when you recognize. And when you realize and when you meditate long on what it is that Jesus has saved you from. When you Get a true picture as we cultivate it and we grow in our understanding of our salvation. And we get a true picture of our redemption. Our hearts just swell more and more with praise towards God. And we become filled with praise of our Lord and our Savior. And we sanctify the Lord God in our minds. He becomes precious to us, the scripture tells us. More and more precious to us. We sanctify Him in our minds and we say that which is right about the Lord Jesus Christ We have a ready answer to give to everyone 
who ask us a reason of the hope that lies within us. And you know what the world needs? The world needs to see in my life and the world needs to see in your life and they see in your face and in my face that Jesus has done great things for us and that he continues to do great things for us and that we believe that Jesus will do what he has said that he will do. Amen? We believe that Jesus will do what he said that he will do. What is it that he has said that he will do? Jesus says, I will build my church. Right? Is that a promise? That's a promise. And I have to tell you that I have to bring my heart back to this promise. And I have to hold my, my heart to this promise many, many times. Because sometimes I forget and I think that in some way I am responsible to build the church. And sometimes things just aren't going right. But Jesus said, no, I, he will build his church. And that is so refreshing to a frustrated heart that is trying to go about to establish things in his own strength. It is so, there's a rest to the people of God when we rest from our own works and we rest in what Jesus said that he will do. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. One of the things that Peter teaches us is that the exceeding great and precious promises of God do what? They enable us to become partakers. Can anyone help me? Partakers of his divine nature. How long has it been since you claimed that promise? I want to promise you, brothers. That I forget sometimes. But when we claim that promise. And we rest in that. There's a peace that comes to our hearts. And we go forth. The brother was talking about finding. A rest in Christ. A refuge in God. And then having the strength. From being with God. And realizing his presence and his nearness. Having the strength to go out. And to do what God calls us to do. That's the promise of Christ. That's the glorious promise of salvation to us is that we don't do it on our strength we do it in the strength that he is we do it on his promises we become partakers with him in his nature and his power working through us enables us to experience the church of Jesus Christ being built and so many times we look out and we look at those who aren't arriving at maturity as fast as what we think they should and really what Christ wants us to do is to humbly be aware of the deep work that he is wanting to do, first and foremost, in this poor soul right here. He wants to build his church right here. An awareness of his greatness and my desperate need for his righteousness to be applied to my heart and to my life. One of the things that I want us just to turn back to Matthew chapter 7 for a few thoughts and understanding how the church of Jesus Christ is built, how we are built upon the rock Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Jesus is talking here in Matthew chapter 7 about bearing fruit, and we know that it is his will, it's his desire that we bear fruit. We were saved for the purpose of doing good works and bringing forth fruit. We're not saved by that, but we're saved for it. And he's talking about bearing fruit down through chapter 7. And we come to these marvelous words in verse 24, where he says this, 
he kind of changes from talking about bearing fruit and he establishes a very clear principle here where he says therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds and the winds blew and beat upon the house and it fell not for it was founded upon the rock and the clear principle that Jesus is teaching here is that there needs to be a strong connection between your life and the rock the rock is the foundation Jesus Christ himself being the rock our lives must be anchored very very intimately connected if there is going to be life flowing through us they, our lives must be must be intimately connected to the foundation stone and the foundation stone is the Lord Jesus Christ And he says, if you have that intimate connection, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter if you get in in a F5 tornado. It cannot and it will not tear you loose from the foundation. Is that true? Jesus said you will not be moved. It doesn't matter how hard the wind blows. It doesn't matter how much water comes sweeping against you in the time of flood. You will face wind. You will face storms. You will face difficulties. You will face tornadoes in life but nothing can move you from that rock if you have that intimate connection with him paul understood that when he says in first corinthians i believe it is he says that there is only a few things that can separate us from the love of god what did he say there is absolutely everyone together nothing nothing that can separate you from the love of christ Nothing can tear you loose. If you're anchored to that rock, it can't do it. There's only one way that you can come loose, and that is if you allow your heart to grow cold and indifferent to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will experience the anchor starting to let loose. But that's from your doing. That's not from what God has allowed. God says He will keep you in that safe place. You can abide there. And you will find strength there. And you will find courage there. To press on in his work and to see what it is that he is doing. Nothing can separate us. We talk a lot about apostasy. And in our hearts we recognize that there's apostasy all around us. Do we not? Don't we see it? There's a great falling away. And we live in that time when there's a great falling away. And Christ himself taught that there would be a falling away. The apostles taught that there would be a falling away in the last days, that the love of many is going to grow cold, and there's going to be a falling away. I'd like, to, I'd like for us to think about that anchor that holds our life to that rock is our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our passion and our commitment. It's our pledge of allegiance to Him and to Him alone. And I'm shocked sometimes when I look at my own heart, and I find apostasy there. Do you ever see apostasy in your own heart? Where there's just a, an, an attitude that I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's going to be any faith left on earth besides me, myself, and my wife, and our children. We sort of get that idea that, you know, God isn't really doing that big of a work anymore. Things are really getting bad. We lose faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, I will build my church. 
And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if you lose faith in Jesus Christ and what he has promised that he will do, that's apostasy happening in my own heart. I have to believe that Jesus is keeping his word. Amen? He keeps his word. He's building his church. And if we allow coldness to creep into our hearts, in our congregations, and we begin to become indifferent towards Christ, and we begin to drift towards the world, that's our doings. Jesus Christ has not failed. His promises are still sure. They're still steadfast. His word is still absolutely trustworthy. It is us who have failed as God's people. And we need to come to repentance and to a brokenness where we allow God to do yet a deeper work in our hearts and glorifying himself. And God promises that he will respond to the broken and the contrite heart. He wants to show himself strong in our congregations. He wants us to be a people who are salt and who are light in our communities. And who have confidence in the word of God. That his principles and his commands are not grievous to us. But they are sweet. They bring joy to our hearts. They bring freedom to our hearts. They bring power in our lives. The peaceable fruits of righteousness. So Lord... Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, is glorious in all that he has promised to do. And he is doing it. We can be sure of that from the scriptures, from our text here tonight. We can be sure that he is doing it. And he says to Peter, he says, Peter, he says, I'm going to hand to you the keys of the kingdom. And whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound. And whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed. And what he is saying to Peter is, Peter, I'm going to use you to open the door in a fresh way. And we see that on the day of Pentecost, how that God used Peter to open the door to the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost and to explain to them in a greater, fuller way the redemption that is ours through Jesus Christ. And the church was built. And then we see Peter being used again to open up the door again to the Gentiles. Christ had given him that responsibility and that privilege to open the door and to show the Gentiles, and that is us, how that we, though that we were not a part of the original olive tree, could be grafted in and made one with Christ. And I just want to encourage you as a body of Christ tonight to stir your hearts up in the promises that God has given. Meet the world with joy in your face. Meet every new day as an opportunity that you have to open up the door to others by your life, by quietly living out the, the reality of the gospel, a restored relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in your home and in your communities. You can open up the door to a greater revelation to the world that Christ is building his church today. Right here in 2013, in this community, there are souls that need to be saved. Perhaps even in this congregation there are those who have not given their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by your joy in serving the Lord, you are a salt and you are a light. And you give others the desire, the thirst to know God. To know the fullness of Christ and His salvation. I want to share some thoughts about the bride. And to do so, let's just think of, of the bride as the called out ones. 
There are many scriptures that we could turn to. For the sake of time, we'll turn perhaps just to a few. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans chapter 1. We are a called out people. And one of the works that we see that the king does, the priest does, in redeeming us to Christ is that he calls us out from the world. He separates us from the world. In Romans chapter 1, Paul, again, in sharing with the brothers and sisters at Rome, he makes this principle very clear. I think we'll just start reading in verse 5. Maybe we'll start reading in verse 3. And Paul says this, he says, Concerning this, His, concerning His, God, Son, Jesus, Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power. So we not only have Peter declaring him to be the Son of God, we now have Paul saying he is declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And we we'll think we'll stop reading there, but the point that I want us to, to get is that as our king, as our priest, what is it that he is doing? He is calling out a people, a spiritual body. We are a called out people. We have heard his voice. Have you heard the voice of God calling in your life? Do you know his voice? We heard tonight about those who heard the voice of God. Do you know his voice? And do you know it today? We live in a world where we tend to get so busy. And there are so many voices that are calling for our attention today. And we have responsibilities in keeping our homes and building the home and making a livelihood for our families and and going to work and making a living and going to school, there's responsibilities. But in our responsibilities, do we hear the voice of God speaking to us? He's calling us. And He continues to call us. And He calls us out. And He calls us unto Himself. He doesn't call us just out to be who we want to be. You know, one of the ones, and we have some young people here, and I love young people, there's a lot of energy in young people. But one of the things about young people is that you haven't walked the road very long yet. It's important in your youth that you hear His voice and that you pledge your life and your soul to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His kingdom. Long term. For eternity. It's not something you do once. Jesus said, every day, you hear this call to die to yourself and to take up my cross and to follow me. And sometimes I hear young people say, well, what about me? How do I give expression to myself? A young lady said to me not long ago, you could see that she was being drawn and, and being pressed into the mold of the world and wanting to just look pretty nice. And she said, how do I give expression to my femininity? And sometimes I see young men who want to be who they want to be. You know, we just sort of start gravitating towards the world and we start dressing a little bit like the world and we find the world pressing us into its mold rather than letting the Word of God press us into the very character of our Lord Jesus. What a trade-off. Have you thought about that? 
You have the privilege as the called out ones to be partakers of His divine nature. What a horrible trade-off. If you trade that divine privilege, that marvelous privilege, to give expression to yourself, to be who you want to be, and attach the name of Christ to your life, that will not work. He wants you to be partaker of His divine nature by daily hearing His voice. Today, if you hear His voice, you say, Yes, Lord, I'm yours. Absolutely all of me. My heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, every part of me, my passion is for you and for your kingdom. We hear His voice. He calls us and He calls us out. Peter gives, Jesus gives acknowledgement to that in Peter's confession in our text. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. There's one thing that Jesus makes very clear, and that is that his kingdom is spiritual in nature. He has a spiritual kingdom, and we are called out to be a part, we're privileged to be a part of that spiritual kingdom that Jesus is establishing here on earth. And this was one of the things that was extremely hard for his disciples to understand and to grasp. Because we all want that which we can feel and touch and see and experience in, in, in the flesh. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No, this is a spiritual kingdom. And you are primarily a spiritual people. And yes, while we are in the flesh, we have responsibilities fulfilled in the, in the flesh. They can only be fulfilled in righteousness when we understand that we are primarily a spiritual people and we will live on eternally as spiritual beings. And only then does our hearts swell with gratitude that we've been called out from the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world, He told Pilate. If my kingdom was this world, then my servants would fight, they would strive to get me established in this life. But no, no, my kingdom is spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom. And it will endure forever. We are called out. And the picture that the scripture gives us is that we are privileged to be his bride. And I love that, that, that picture that he gives us. We are the bride of Christ. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19 as we try to get a picture of what it is that Jesus is doing on earth today. Revelation chapter 19. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation we read many things that are going to happen that are happening presently and things that are going to happen in the future. And we're just going to drop in here just on a few verses in Revelation 19. And we get a picture of something that is going to happen in the future as a result of what Jesus is doing in time, for eternity. And we see here in, in chapter 19, verse 5, we'll start reading. And John says this, and he says, A voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him 
For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to him and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is a righteousness of the saints. And I just want to dwell on this a little bit with you brothers and sisters. Because my heart thrills when I think about that marriage supper of the Lamb. That true born again Christians who are, whose sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. We look forward to that, do we not? That marriage supper of the Lamb. We have those three covenant feasts promised to us in Scripture. We have the Passover in the Old Testament. We have the Lord's Supper right now. And we experience that, do we not? When we gather together to commemorate, to bring to remembrance again what Jesus has done. And we break the bread and we remember His body that was broken for us. And we share the cup and we remember His blood that was spilt for us on Calvary. We remember. And when we do so, when we remember... We look forward to that covenant feast that is yet to come. That that marriage supper of the Lamb. And our hearts rejoice. And we look forward with expectation. And we can only begin to understand in a small way as we read these scriptures what it would be like when we get to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But we hear it, we read here that the redeemed of the Lord, that their voices were like a great multitude, and as they say, Alleluia! For the Lord is omnipotent, and he reigneth. It says that it was like the mighty thundering. Can you imagine that just for a minute to stop and to think about what it would be like to hear that? Multitudes. More than man can number. Praising God. Realizing in the fullest way. So full compared to how we can in a small way realize it now. The price of and the value of being called out from a perishing world. You will realize it in the fullness there in a way that you can never realize it in the flesh. We can only begin to. But what a joy it will be. And he says, this is, the, this is the thing that we want to notice. He says, let us be glad and rejoice. And this is for us today, brothers and sisters. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, then let your heart be glad and rejoice. And give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. That is future tense. She is doing something today for what will happen in the future. And so our responsibility as his bride is that we are making ourselves ready. We are purifying ourselves. We are puring our, separating ourselves from the world by the grace of God and by the work of his spirit in our lives. We are separating ourselves from the world. And we are pledging our lives for his kingdom. For that moment. When we walk through those gates and we're ushered in to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a moment that will be. I can't think of this scripture without thinking about the 
likeness in the Old Testament of the Jewish weddings and what's happening in the church of Jesus Christ today. You know, in, in the Jewish times, there was a man would choose a wife or sometimes his parents would choose a wife for him. And it was an engagement. It was an agreement that there would be a wedding. But they didn't know when the wedding would be. So there was the engagement time. Then there was the, the interval, the time between the engagement and the wedding when the, bridegro- the bridegroom would go and get a place ready and he'd establish his farm and his home. And then he would come back and he would gather up his friends as he came back towards the, the bride's home. And the bride wanted to be ready and prepared and keep herself holy and spotless. And we see this so clearly in the, the parable that Jesus told about the ten virgins. And ten of them were ready to go. They were responding to the Spirit. They were hearing the voice of God in their lives. And they were ready when he came. And five of them were foolish. And when they get to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the door is shut and the door is locked. And it's one of those sad passages of Scripture. Because their hearts had grown cold and indifferent to what God promised that he would do through his son Jesus. Let's not let that happen in our hearts, brothers and sisters. We see this picture so clearly, the type of it, in Genesis chapter 24. And we're not going to take time to go there. We're all familiar with that passage where you have Abraham as the father and you have Isaac as the bridegroom. And you have Eleazar, I believe it is, as a servant. Am I right on that? Did I get the name right, brothers? And he is sent. He represents the Holy Spirit. And he is sent into a far country to find a bride for Isaac. And he goes, and he, he, with the blessing of God, he finds Rebekah. And what does he do? He decks her with jewels. Where did he get the jewels? He brought them from the father's house as a promise declaring her as now the possession of the bridegroom and we read in scripture that we have been given the earnest of the inheritance the joy that we have in our hearts as Christians today the ornament of a joyful spirit the joy of the Lord in our hearts the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven It's our down payment. It's our guarantee. It's our guarantee that Jesus will do in our hearts and lives through His Holy Spirit what He has promised to do. He will bring us on that long journey back to the bridegroom where the marriage will be consummated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. God is doing great things. He is. He is. And sometimes our hearts just fail to see. And sometimes we get discouraged as we see the shallowness in our own hearts and the tendency to grow cold. And we need to stir our hearts up to what is really happening in the spiritual kingdom of God and our Christ upon earth. And what is happening? People are being saved. They're being redeemed. They're being called out. They're being brought from darkness to light. And their lives are changing. And if we don't see these things, sometimes we can miss the work of God's Spirit right before us. And we need to stir our hearts up And be a part of what God is doing. By first letting him do that work within our own hearts and within our own lives. And the thing that I want you to notice here in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 19. Is that it says here. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For that fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And I want to ask you this. What is the righteousness of the saints? 
Is it your ability to work hard and to be a good person and to, and to fulfill the law? If we go to Romans chapter 8, we read that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. How is that that he is the end of the law for righteousness? The law makes a demand that none of us can meet. We can none be righteous by trying to fulfill the law. We can never pay what the law demands. And that's why our Lord and Savior came. A holy, spotless lamb. And he paid the price that we can never pay. For the sins that we have committed. For the sins of humanity. He paid for it there on the cross. And the demands of that law were met. And by our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. His payment applies to our sin. And we are set free from the demands of the law. And unless you have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your heart, you're still under the demands of the law. And if you die in your sins without placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will for all eternity pay for your sins that, could, that were paid for on the cross of Christ. But you never by faith look to Christ. To have those sins removed. This is very, 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 very sobering. That the righteousness of Christ that is ours by faith is applied to our hearts as we look to Christ in faith. We want to see here in verse 9 that he says that it was granted unto her. Did you see that, brothers? It's not her righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ that is granted unto her. How is it granted unto us? It is granted to us by the grace of God through Christ Jesus and through our faith in Him. It is granted unto us. So important that when we come to that wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we have that wedding garment on. We could go to the parable that Jesus said where He came to the, 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 the Lord of the feast, the King, came to the wedding and he looks among the guests and he sees one there who did not have on a wedding garment. We must have that wedding garment, the righteousness of Christ applied to our hearts, covering us. That when God looks at you, because of your faith in Christ, that he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That your sins are taken away. And how is that granted unto us? It is granted unto us through a faith in Jesus Christ. I want to take us next to Matthew chapter 13. And there are many things on my heart tonight. I don't have time for all the scriptures. I'll just share a few things with you here yet that stir my heart and give me faith that God is going to do. And he will continue the work that he has begun among his people. And we need to have our hearts stirred in a fresh way with what he is doing. In Matthew chapter 13, I... uh, I want to encourage you to read this passage and just let the Spirit of God speak to you through this passage. We don't have time to cover the entire chapter here tonight. But just an overview of the passage here. Jesus is teaching and He's teaching a congregation, a large multitude of people. And He teaches by parables and He teaches, He wants us to understand it is given unto us to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Amen? He doesn't want us to stumble around in darkness and blindness. He wants us to know what it is that He's doing in our hearts and lives and what He's doing on earth today. In 2013, this is what He's doing 
among his people. And this is the hope that is being offered to a lost and dying world. And he says, he wants us to know the mysteries that he teaches in parables. In the first four parables here, he teaches, he teaches about the establishment of the church. And he teaches about what the, the work of Satan in trying to hinder his work upon earth. And we're, we're well aware of that, are we not? We're not ignorant concerning his devices. And you don't need to look around far to see that Satan has a plan, does he not? That's why we need to have a vision for our brotherhood. Because if we don't have a vision for our families and for our brotherhood and for our community that aligns itself with the Lord Jesus Christ, guess who does have a plan? The enemy of our soul has a plan. And he's not growing tired. He's running out of time. And what Jesus is saying, he teaches four of these parables publicly. And each one of these parables, he's teaching that he is going to establish his church And that Satan is going to do everything possible to make the church experience difficulty. And the first parable he shares is the parable of the sower. And he says just about the busyness of life. Just read it from that perspective that Jesus is teaching that he will establish a church and Satan is going to come against him and make life very, very difficult. And the second parable he teaches is that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes out and sows good seed. Into his field. And a few weeks later, they notice that there's something else growing out there. And he says, What's going on? Well, the enemy has come and sown good seed, a bad seed, among the good seed. And Jesus gives them instruction that no, you don't go out there and tear up the weeds, you'll pull up the good seed too. But in the day of judgment, all this is going to be sorted out. So, a certain amount of rest that we have to have and trust in Christ. That even though things aren't always the way they look like they ought to be, Christ is still going to do his work. Satan is going to try to frustrate the work of Christ, but Christ is going to go on. He's going to do his work. And then he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The smallest of all seeds is planted in the ground and it grows up and it becomes a refuge, a place of refreshment for the people of God. But guess what? It also draws the birds of the air. Those who have corrupt Desires come and try to lodge in her branches. Satan is always resisting the work of Christ. And furthermore, he says that the kingdom of God is like a little bit of leaven that's hid in a good work that Christ is trying to do. And leaven is always associated with evil because it's a bacteria. And Satan is going to try to sneak a little bit in. Every brotherhood will experience this. Every life will experience this. Satan will try to sneak a little bit of unleaven in there and defile the whole body. That's his his plan. And Jesus does not want us to be ignorant concerning these things. And then he takes his disciples and he draws them away. And privately, he teaches them four more parables. We don't have time for all of them tonight. But he wants them to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. And there's a few verses here I want to just share with you tonight. One is in verse 44. Where Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for the joy thereof he goeth, and he selleth all that he hath, and he buyeth the field. Okay, that's one of the parables that Jesus teaches his disciples in private. And what he is saying, if you study this out, and I encourage you to do it, to read it, to study it in the Greek, he is saying it's not like a chest. Sometimes 
we have these, these coloring books um, or picture books for the children and it shows a man who has uncovered a chest out in the field. That's not the picture that we get here. The picture that we get here is a deep mine of wealth to be mined over ages. Jesus is the merchant man who comes and he sees the value as he looks down through the ages and he sees the souls, the never dying souls of men and he says, I've got to do something. There needs to be a dazed man, someone who will value that incredible worth. And he sells everything that he has that he might have the world. You see, the picture here is that you have God and Jesus in heaven with his Father. And he's looking at earth. And he sees the souls of men. And he says, I'm willing to leave everything behind to give up everything for the, the privilege to go down there and through the ages to salvage whoever will hear my call and separate themselves unto me. I'm willing to do that. The kingdom of heaven is like a deep, deep mind. And that mind will not be exhausted until the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And the work will be forever complete. And he's going to make a short work on earth. We're running out of time too, brothers and sisters. And we dare not grow faint. We dare not become self-focused. And we dare not allow ourselves to be drawn away from the work that Christ wants to do in you and for us. And furthermore, he says in verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, whom when he hath found one pearl of great price, he went and he sold all that he had, and he bought it. Sometimes we share this passage of scripture and we say that we have to be willing to sell all that we have. And that Jesus Christ is that one pearl of great price. And while there might be some value in looking at it in that way, the true meaning of this parable that Jesus is teaching, I think is much deeper than that. And that Jesus alone, we can't buy our salvation. You can sell everything you've got. And how much do you have to offer to God for your sins? I mean, you ain't got nothing to offer Him. You cannot buy your salvation no matter how much wealth you have. But what this is teaching us is that Jesus is a merchant man who wanted to purchase an incredibly valuable treasure for Himself. And He came to earth to do that. And He sold all that He had. And we could go to Philippians and forsake a time, we won't do that. But we go to Philippians, and it says there in Philippians that he who was rich, he gave up everything. He gave up his crown of gold for a crown of thorns. He gave up his royal crown for a purple, a royal robe for a purple robe that stuck to his blood soaked back. He gave up everything. He humbled himself and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He was a man of incredible wealth beyond anything that we can comprehend. And yet he became poor that we through his poverty 
might become? Do we know? Can we say it? That we might become rich. Do you recognize the wealth that is yours in Christ Jesus? Why do we look at the world? Why is there any pull at all on our hearts from the world when we realize what is ours? He came and he purchased a treasure. Where was the treasure? What was the value of the treasure? You know, a pearl. What, who establishes the value of, the, of, of a pearl? The value of the pearl is it's not an intrinsic value. It's a value that is established by the merchant and what he is willing to pay. Jesus Christ established our value in what he was willing to pay. And he was willing to pay everything. And who was it that he went to, to buy this for? He went to purchase this pearl for himself. To be his bride. Yeah. And there's so much richness in understanding how a pearl is formed. You know, you take a pearl. A pearl is formed by an irritant. A grain of sand. Getting into an oyster. And it irritates that oyster. makes life very uncomfortable for that oyster. And what does that oyster do? Out of its own life, it coats that irritant with mother of pearl, a secretion from its own life. It covers that irritant. And it continues to cover that irritant. It continues to cover that irritant. And over the years, as the years progress, it does not expel that irritant, but it embraces it and continues to cover it with layer upon layer upon layer of the mother of pearl. A secretion that comes from the very life of the oyster. There is only one gemstone that comes from life. All others are man-made, cut from stone. A pearl comes from the life of the oyster. The Christian is an irritant. His sin is an irritant to the holiness of God. And rather than casting us aside, he has drawn us to himself. And he continues to cover us with his holiness, with his righteousness, with his grace, with his mercy, with his forgiveness, and with the blood of Jesus Christ. You didn't need, just need the blood of Christ on the day when you gave your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the blood of Christ applied to our hearts continually in a fresh way. Forgive us this day our debts as we forgive our debtors. We need that forgiveness and the blood of Christ in a fresh way. And we are covered with the righteousness of Christ. And there are those forces of evil, there are the lusts of the world, desires of the flesh, and the pride of life that are constantly trying to pry us out away from the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's only as we abide there in Christ, He in us, and us in Him, that we experience that intimate connection that keeps us firm and solid upon that unmovable rock. And we become partakers of His divine nature, not because we become such a holy, righteous people who have no failures. We will always be unworthy of the righteousness of Christ. 
For we experience his righteousness. It's granted unto us. And the beautiful thing is that in Christ in building his body, his church, we see the foundation being the Lord Jesus Christ, that rock. We see his roof being the commands of Christ and the promises of God. The commands of Christ are not grievous to the child of God who abides close to the heart of Christ. His promises, we rest in those promises that he will build his church, that the church will move forward and the gates of hell will not destroy his church. We rest in those promises. And as we rest in those promises, we become partakers of his divine nature. And he is able to work in us and through us and to give us the strength and the joy that we need to be a shining light in the dark world in which we live. And to serve him with joy. To be a salt that has not lost its savor. To be those who are preparing themselves for that marriage supper of the Lamb. Our time is spent. Brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you. There was a time, there was a time when God said, My spirit will no longer, will not always strive with men yet 120 years. And I will wipe out humanity. Because the hearts of men are set to do evil continually. And we read that is in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. When Jesus comes again, the hearts of men and women are going to be set on serving themselves continually. But God noticed that there was a man who feared him. Who had his hope set on him. Who found the promises of God a resting place for for his soul. And he says, Noah, you found grace in my eyes. And here's what I want you to do for the next 120 years. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to prepare, prepare for an event that never before in the history of time has ever happened. I want you to preach to the people and I want you to warn the people... And I want you to prepare for an event. And Noah spent the next 120 years preparing for the saving of his soul and the souls of his children and preaching to deaf ears. And I want to believe that there were times in that 120 years when Noah said, you know, am I crazy or what? Here I am. I'm pouring all my time resources. I'm pouring all my energy. I'm pouring all my finances into preparing for something that has never, ever in history happened. Based only on the fact that back there, 60, 80, 90 years ago, God said it would happen. I believe Noah had questions. There was times in his life when he questioned. But he always came through. And refocused and said, God said it, I believe it, I'm going to rest in that. And I want to ask you a question. Was it worth it for Noah? Did Noah make the right decision? When in the midst of the pressure moments of his life, when he was being mocked and ridiculed, he said, yeah, I know, sometimes I think that way too, but I believe God. Today it's our turn. We have a sure word of prophecy that someday that there is going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that today is our day to prepare, to make ourselves pure and ready, to be hearing the voice of God, to be resting in His promises, to be treasuring His commandments, to be separating ourselves from a lost and dying and a perishing world. Today is our day. 
And I'm going to promise you that when that trumpet sounds, it will be worth every bit of energy that you have put into it. Let's be men and women who keep our focus. And if you've lost your focus, renew your focus. It'll be to the saving of your heart, the saving of your soul, and hopefully to the saving of those around you. May God bless you. May he inspire you. May his promises be precious to you. Can we make a prayer? Let's kneel together and pray.